Section 2 of Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Farnu Jahangiri. Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics by Immanuel Kant. Translated by Paul Carros. Prolegomena. Preamble on the peculiarities of all metaphysical cognition. 1. Of the sources of metaphysics. If it becomes desirable to formulate any cognition as science, it will be necessary first to determine accurately those peculiar features which no other science has in common with it, constituting its characteristics. Otherwise the boundaries of all sciences become confused and none of them can be treated thoroughly according to its nature. The characteristics of a science may consist of a simple difference of object, or of the sources of cognition, or of the kind of cognition, or perhaps of all three conjointly. On this, therefore, depends the idea of a possible science and its territory. First, as concerns the sources of metaphysical cognition, its very concept implies that they cannot be empirical. Its principles, including not only its maxims but its basic notions, must never be derived from experience. It must not be physical but metaphysical knowledge, with knowledge lying beyond experience. It can therefore have for its basis neither external experience, which is the source of physics proper, nor internal, which is the basis of empirical psychology. It is therefore a priori knowledge, coming from pure understanding and pure reason. But so far, metaphysics would not be distinguishable from pure mathematics. It must therefore be called pure philosophical cognition, and for the meaning of this term, I refer to the critic of the pure reason. 2. Method of Transcendentalism, Chapter 1, Section 1, where the distinction between these two employments of the reason is sufficiently explained, so far concerning the sources of metaphysical cognition. 2. Concerning the kind of cognition which can alone be called metaphysical. a. Of the distinction between analytical and synthetical judgments in general, the peculiarity of its sources demands that metaphysical cognition must consist of nothing but the a priori judgments. But whatever be their origin or their logical form, there is a distinction in judgments as to their contents according to which they are either merely explicative, adding nothing to the content of the cognition, or expansive, increasing the given cognition. The former may be called analytical, the latter synthetical judgments. Analytical judgments express nothing in their predicates but what has been already actually thought in the concept of the subject, though not so distinctly or with the same full consciousness. When I say, all bodies are extended, I have not amplified in the least my concept of body, but have only analyzed it, as extension was really thought to belong to that concept before the judgment was made, though it was not expressed. This judgment is therefore analytical. On the contrary, this judgment, all bodies have weight, contains in its predicate 
something not actually thought in the general concept of the body it amplifies my knowledge by adding something to my concept and must therefore be called synthetical b the common principle of all analytical judgments is the law of contradiction all analytical judgments depend wholly on the law of contradiction and are in their nature a priori cognitions whether the concepts that supply them with matter be empirical or not for the predicate of an affirmative analytical judgment is already contained in the concept of the subject of which it cannot be denied without contradiction in the same way its opposite is necessarily denied of the subject in an analytical but negative judgment by the same law of contradiction such is the nature of the judgments all bodies are extended and no bodies are unextended i.e simple for this very reason all analytical judgments are a priori even when the concepts are empirical as for example gold is a yellow metal for to know this i require no experience beyond my concept of gold as a yellow metal it is in fact the very concept and i need only analyze it without looking beyond it elsewhere c synthetical judgments require a different principle from the law of contradiction there are synthetical a posteriori judgments of empirical origin but there are also others which are proved to be certain a priori and which spring from pure understanding and reason yet they both agree in this that they cannot possibly spring from the principle of analysis with the law of contradiction alone they require a quite different principle though from whatever they may be deduced they must be subject to the law of contradiction which must never be violated even though everything cannot be deduced from it i shall first classify synthetical judgments one empirical judgments are always synthetical for it would be absurd to base an analytical judgment on experience as our concept suffices for the purpose without requiring any testimony from experience that body is extended is a judgment established a priori and not an empirical judgment for before appealing to experience we already have all the conditions of the judgment in the concept from which we have but to elicit the predicate according to the law of contradiction and thereby to become conscious of the necessity of the judgment which experience could not even teach it two mathematical judgments are all synthetical this fact seems hitherto to have altogether escaped the observation of those who have analyzed human reason it even seems directly opposed to all their conjectures though incontestably certain and most important in these consequences for as it was found that the conclusions of mathematicians all proceed according to the law of contradiction as is demanded by all apodeictic certainty men for a synthetical proposition can indeed be comprehended according to the law of contradiction but only by presupposing another synthetical proposition from which it follows but never in itself first of all we must observe that all proper mathematical judgments are a priori and not empirical 
because they carry with them necessity, which cannot be obtained from experience. But if this be not conceded to me, very good. I shall confine my assertion to pure mathematics, the very notion of which implies that it contains pure a priori and not empirical cognitions. It might at first be thought that the proposition 7 plus 5 equals 12 is a mere analytical judgment, following from the concept of the sum of 7 and 5 according to the law of contradiction. But on closer examination, it appears that the concept of the sum of 7 plus 5 contains merely their union in a single number, without its being at all thought what the particular number is that unites them. The concept of 12 is by no means thought by merely thinking of the combination of 7 and 5. And analyze this possible sum as we may, we shall not discover 12 in the concept. We must go beyond these concepts by calling to our aid some concrete image, i.e. either or five fingers or five points as Seigneur has it in his arithmetic. And we must add successively the units of the five given in some concrete image to the concept of seven. Hence, our concept is really amplified by the proposition seven plus five equals twelve, and we add to the first a second, not thought in it. Arithmetical judgments are therefore synthetical and more plainly according as we take larger numbers, for in such cases it is clear that however closely we analyze our concepts without calling visual images to our aid, we can never find a sum by such mere dissection. All principles of geometry are now less analytical. That a straight line is the shortest path between two points is a synthetical proposition. For my concept of a straight contains nothing of quantity, but only a quality. The attribute of shortness is therefore altogether additional, and cannot be obtained by any analysis of the concept. Here too visualization must come to aid us. It alone makes the synthesis possible. Some other principles assumed by geometers are indeed actually analytical, and depend on the law of contradiction but they only serve as identical propositions as a method of concatenation and not as principles. E.g. A equals A, the whole is equal to itself, or A plus B is larger than A, the whole is greater than its parts, and yet even these, though they are recognized as valid from mere concepts, are only admitted in mathematics because they can be represented in some visual form. What usually makes us believe that the predicate of such apodeictic judgments is already contained in our concept, and that the judgment is therefore analytical, is the duplicity of the expression, requesting us to think a certain predicate as of necessity implied in the thought of a given concept, which necessity attaches to the concept. But the question is not what we are requested to join in thought to the given concept, but what we actually think together with and in it, though obscurely, and so it appears that the predicate belongs to these concepts necessarily indeed, yet not directly but indirectly by an added visualization. 3. A remark on the general division of judgment into analytical and synthetical. This division is indispensable. 
as concerns the critic of human understanding and therefore deserves to be called classical though otherwise it is of little use but this is the reason why dogmatic philosophers who always seek the sources of metaphysical judgments in metaphysics itself and not apart from it in the pure laws of reason generally altogether neglected this apparently obvious distinction thus the celebrated wolf and his acute follower Baumgarten came to seek the proof of the principle of sufficient reason which is clearly synthetical in the principle of contradiction in locke's essay however i find an indication of my division for in the fourth book chapter three nine sequel having discussed the various connections of representations in judgments and their sources one of which he makes identity and contradiction analytical judgments and another the coexistence of representations in a subject he confesses that or a priori knowledge of the latter is very narrow and almost nothing but in his remarks on this species of cognition there is so little of what is definite and reduced to rules that we cannot wonder if no one not even hume was led to make investigations concerning this sort of judgments for such general and yet definite principles are not easily learned from other men who have had them obscurely in their minds we must hit on them first by our own reflection then we find them elsewhere where we could not possibly have found them at first because the authors themselves did not know that such an idea lay at the basis of their observations men who never think independently have nevertheless the acuteness to discover everything after it has been once shown them in what was said long since though no one ever saw it there before four the general question of the prolegomena is metaphysics at all possible whether metaphysics which could maintain its place as a science really in existence could we say here is metaphysics learn it and it will convince you irresistibly and irrevocably of its truth this question would be useless and there would only remain that other question which would rather be a test of our accurateness than a proof of the existence of the thing itself how is the science possible and how does reason come to attain it but human reason has not been so fortunate in this case there is no single book to which you can point as you do to euclid and say this is metaphysics here you may find the noblest objects of this science the knowledge of a highest being and of a future existence proof from principles of few reason we can be shown indeed many judgments demonstrably certain and never questioned but these are all analytical and rather concern the materials and the scaffolding for metaphysics than the extension of knowledge which is our proper object in studying it even supposing you produce synthetical judgment such as the law of sufficient reason which you have never proved as you ought to from pure reason a priori though we gladly concede its truth you lapse when they come to be employed for your principal object into such doubtful assertions that in all ages one metaphysics has contradicted another either in its assertions or their proofs and thus has itself destroyed its own claim to lasting assent nay the very attempts to set up such a science 
are the main cause of the early appearance of skepticism, a mental attitude in which reason treats itself with such violence that it could never have arisen, save from complete despair of even satisfying or most important aspirations. For long before men began to inquire into nature methodically, they consulted abstract reason, which had to some extent been exercised by means of ordinary experience, for reason is ever present, while laws of nature must usually be discovered with labor. So metaphysics floated to the surface, like foam, which dissolved the moment it was scooped off, but immediately there appeared a new supply on the surface to be ever eagerly gathered up by some, while others, instead of seeking in the depth the cause of the phenomenon, thought they showed their wisdom by ridiculing the idle labor of their neighbors. The essential and distinguishing feature of pure mathematical cognition among all other a priori cognitions is that it cannot at all proceed from concepts, but only by means of the construction of concepts. As therefore in its judgments it must proceed beyond the concept to that which its corresponding visualization contains, these judgments neither can nor ought to arise analytically by dissecting the concept, but are all synthetical. I cannot refrain from pointing out the disadvantage resulting to philosophy from the neglect of this easy and apparently insignificant observation. Hume being prompted, a task worthy of a philosopher, to cast his eye over the whole field of a priori cognitions in which human understanding claims such mighty possessions, heedlessly severed from it a whole, and indeed its most valuable province, with pure mathematics, for he thought its nature, or so to speak the state constitution of this empire, dependent on totally different principles, namely on the law of contradiction alone. And although he did not divide judgments in this manner formerly and universally, as I have done here, what he said was equivalent to this, that mathematics contains only analytical, but metaphysics synthetical, a priori judgments. In this, however, he was greatly mistaken and the mistake had a decidedly injurious effect upon his whole conception. But for this he would have extended his question concerning the origin of our synthetical judgments far beyond the metaphysical concept of causality and included in it the possibility of mathematics a priori also, for this latter he must have assumed to be equally synthetical. And then he could not have based his metaphysical judgments on mere experience without subjecting the axioms of mathematics equally to experience, a thing which he was far too acute to do. The good company into which metaphysics would thus have been brought would have saved it from the danger of a contemptuous ill-treatment, for the thrust intended for it must have reached mathematics which was not and could not have been Hume's intention. Thus, that acute man would have been led into considerations which must needs be similar to those that now occupy us, but which would have gained inestimably by his inimitably elegant style. Metaphysical judgments, properly so called, are all synthetical. 
We must distinguish judgments pertaining to metaphysics from metaphysical judgments properly so called. Many of the former are analytical, but they only afford a means for metaphysical judgments which are the whole end of science, and which are always synthetical. For if there be concepts pertaining to metaphysics, as for example that of substance, the judgments springing from simple analysis of them also pertain to metaphysics, as for example substance is that which only exists as subject. And by means of several such analytical judgments, we seek to approach the definition of the concept. But as the analysis of a pure concept of the understanding pertaining to metaphysics does not proceed in any different manner from the dissection of any other, even empirical concepts not pertaining to metaphysics, such as air is an elastic fluid, the elasticity of which is not destroyed by any known degree of cold, it follows that the concept indeed but not the analytical judgment is properly metaphysical. This science has something peculiar in the production of its a priori cognitions, which must therefore be distinguished from the features it has in common with other rational knowledge. Thus the judgment that all the substance in things is permanent is a synthetical and properly metaphysical judgment. If the a priori principles, which constitute the materials of metaphysics, have first been collected according to fixed principles, then their analysis will be of great value. It might be taught as a particular part, as a philosophia definitiva, containing nothing but analytical judgments pertaining to metaphysics and could be treated separately from the synthetical which constitute metaphysics proper. For indeed these analyses are not elsewhere of much value, except in metaphysics, i.e. as regards the synthetical judgments which are to be generated by these previously analyzed concepts. The conclusion drawn in this section then is that metaphysics is properly concerned with synthetical propositions a priori, and these alone constitute its end, for which it indeed requires various dissections of its concepts with of its analytical judgments but wherein the procedures is not different from that in every other kind of knowledge in which we merely seek to render our concepts distinct by analysis but the generation of a priori cognition by concrete images as well as by concepts in fine of synthetical propositions a priori in philosophical condition constitutes the essential subject of metaphysics. Weary, therefore, as well of dogmatism, which teaches us nothing, as of skepticism, which does not even promise us anything, not even the quiet state of a contented ignorance, disquiet by the importance of knowledge so much needed, and lastly rendered suspicious by long experience of all knowledge which we believe we possess or which offers itself under the title of pure reason there remains but one critical question on the answer to which our future procedure depends viz is metaphysics at all possible but this question must be answered not by skeptical objections to the asseverations of some actual system of metaphysics for we do not as yet admit such a thing to exist, but from the conception as yet only problematical of a science of this sort. In the Critic of Pure Reason, I have treated this question synthetically by making inquiries into pure reason itself, 
and endeavoring in this source to determine the elements as well as the laws of its pure use according to principles the task is difficult and requires a resolute reader to penetrate by degrees into a system based on no data except reason itself and which therefore seeks without resting upon any fact to unfold knowledge from its original germs prolegomena however are designed for preparatory exercises they are intended rather to point out what we have to do in order if possible to actualize science than to propound it they must therefore rest upon something already known as trustworthy from which we can set out with confidence and ascend to sources as yet unknown the discovery of which will not only explain to us what we knew but exhibit a sphere of many cognitions which all spring from the same sources the method of prolegomena especially of those designed as a preparation for future metaphysics is consequently analytical but it happens fortunately that though we cannot assume metaphysics to be an actual science we can say with confidence that certain pure a priori synthetical cognitions pure mathematics and pure physics are actual and given for both contain propositions which are thoroughly recognized as apodeictically certain partly by mere reason partly by general consent arising from experience and yet as independent of experience we have therefore some at least uncontested synthetical knowledge a priori and need not ask whether it is possible for it is actual but how it is possible in order that we may deduce from the principle which makes the given cognitions possible the possibility of all the rest the general problem how is cognition from pure reason possible five we have above learned the significant distinction between analytical and synthetical judgments the possibility of analytical propositions was easily comprehended being entirely founded on the law of contradiction the possibility of synthetical a posteriori judgments of those which are gathered from experience also require no particular explanation for experience is nothing but a continual synthesis of perceptions there remains therefore only synthetical propositions a priori of which the possibility must be sought or investigated because they must depend upon other principles than the law of contradiction but here we need not first establish the possibility of such propositions so as to ask whether they are possible for there are enough of them which indeed are of undoubted certainty and as our present method is analytical we shall start from the fact that such synthetical but purely rational cognition actually exists but we must now inquire into the reason of this possibility and ask how such cognition is possible in order that we may from the principles of its possibility be enabled to determine the conditions of its use its sphere and its limits the proper problem upon which all depends when expressed with the scholastic precision is therefore how are synthetic propositions a priori possible for the sake of the popularity i have above expressed this problem somewhat differently as an inquiry into purely rational cognition which i could do for once without detriment to the desired comprehension because as we have only to do here with metaphysics and its sources the reader will i hope after the foregoing remarks 
Keep in mind that when we speak of purely rational cognition, we do not mean analytical, but synthetical cognition. Metaphysics stands or falls with the solution of this problem. Its very existence depends upon it. Let anyone make metaphysical assertions with ever so much plausibility. Let him overwhelm us with conclusions, if he has not previously proved able to answer this question satisfactorily, I have a right to say, this is all vain, baseless philosophy and false wisdom. You speak through pure reason and claim, as it were, to create cognitions a priori by not only dissecting given concepts, but also by asserting connections which do not rest upon the law of contradiction and which you believe you conceive quite independently of all experience. How do you arrive at this, and how will you justify your pretensions? An appeal to the consent of the common sense of mankind cannot be allowed, for that is a witness whose authority depends merely upon rumor. Says Horace, Quaducanco osantis, mihi sic, incredulous odi. To all that which thou provest me thus, I refuse to give credence. The answer to this question, though indispensable, is difficult. And though the principal reason that it was not made long ago is that the possibility of the question never occurred to anybody, there is yet another reason, which is this that a satisfactory answer to this one question requires a much more persistent, profound, and painstaking reflection than the most diffuse work on metaphysics which on its first appearance promised immortality to its author. An even intelligent reader, when he carefully reflects what this problem requires, must at first be struck with its difficulty, and would regard it as insoluble and even impossible, did there not actually exist pure synthetical cognitions a priori. This actually happened to David Hume, though he did not conceive the question in its entire universality as is done here, and as must be done, should the answer be decisive for all metaphysics. For how is it possible, says that acute man, that when a concept is given me, I can go beyond it and connect with it another, which is not contained in it, in such a manner as if the latter necessarily belonged to the former. Nothing but experience can furnish us with such connections. Thus he concluded from the difficulty which he took to be an impossibility. And all that wanted necessity, or what is the same thing, all cognition assumed to be a priori, is nothing but a long habit of accepting something as true, and hence of misstating subjective necessity for objective. Should my reader complain of the difficulty and the trouble which I occasion him in the solution of this problem, he is at liberty to solve it himself in an easier way. Perhaps he will then feel under obligation to the person who has undertaken for him a labor of so profound research, and will rather be surprised at the facility with which, considering the nature of the subject, the solution has been attained. Yet it has cost years of work to solve the problem in its whole universality, using the term in the mathematical sense viz. for that which is sufficient for all cases, and finally to exhibit it in the analytical form as the reader finds it here. All metaphysicians are therefore solemnly and legally suspended from their occupations till they shall have answered in a satisfactory manner the question, how are synthetic cognitions a priori possible? For the answer contains which they must show when they have anything to offer in the name of pure reason. 
But if they do not possess these credentials, they can expect nothing else of reasonable people, who have been deceived so often than to be dismissed without further ado. If they, on the other hand, desire to carry on their business, not as a science, but as an art of wholesome oratory suited to the common sense of man, they cannot in justice be prevented. They will then speak the modest language of a rational belief. They will grant that they are not allowed even to conjecture, far less to know anything which lies beyond the bounds of all possible experience, but only to assume, not for a speculative use, which they must abandon, but for practical purposes only, the existence of something that is possible and even indispensable for the guidance of the understanding and of the will in life. In this manner alone can they be called useful and wise men, and the more so as they renounce the title of metaphysicians. For the latter profess to be a speculative philosophers, and since, when judgments a priori are under discussion, poor probabilities cannot be admitted, for what is declared to be known a priori is thereby announced as necessary. Such men cannot be permitted to play with conjectures, but their assertions must be either science or are worth nothing at all. It may be said that the entire transcendental philosophy, which necessarily precedes all metaphysics, is nothing but the complete solution of the problem here propounded, in systematical order and completeness, and hitherto we have never had any transcendental philosophy. For what goes by its name is properly a part of metaphysics, whereas the former science is intended first to constitute the possibility of the latter, and must therefore precede all metaphysics. And it is not surprising that when a whole science, deprived of all help from other sciences, and consequently in itself quite new, is required to answer a single question satisfactorily, we should find the answer troublesome and difficult, nay even shrouded in obscurity. As we now proceed to this solution according to the analytical method in which we assume that such cognitions from pure reasons actually exist, we can only appeal to two sciences of theoretical cognition which alone is under consideration here, pure mathematics and pure natural science, physics, for these alone can exhibit to us objects in a definite and actualizable form. And consequently, if there should occur in them a cognition a priori, can show the truth or conformity of the cognition to the object in concreto, that is, its actuality, from which we could proceed to the reason of its possibility by the analytical method. This facilitates our work greatly, for here universal considerations are not only applied to facts, but even start from them while a synthetic procedure they must strictly be derived in abstracto from concepts but in order to rise from these actual and at the same time well-grounded pure cognitions a priori to such a possible cognition of the same as we are seeking with to metaphysics as a science we must comprehend that which occasions it i mean the mere natural though in spite of its truth not unsuspected cognition a priori which lies at the bottom of that science, the elaboration of which, without any critical investigation of the possibility, is commonly called metaphysics. In a word, we must comprehend the natural conditions of such a science as a part of our inquiry, and thus the transcendental problem will be gradually answered by a division into four questions. 1. 
How is pure mathematics possible? 2. How is pure natural science possible? 3. How is metaphysics in general possible? 4. How is metaphysics as a science possible? It may be seen that the solution of these problems, though chiefly designed to exhibit the essential matter of the critique, has yet something peculiar, which for itself alone deserves attention. This is the search for the sources of given sciences in reason itself, so that its faculty of knowing something a priori may be its own deeds be investigated and measured. By this procedure these sciences gain, if not with regard to their contents, yet as to their proper use, and while they throw light on the higher question concerning their common origin, they give at the same time an occasion better to explain their own nature. End of section 2 Recording by Fanna Jahangiri